A QA engineer walks into a bar, orders a beer, orders zero beers, orders 9,999 beers, orders a lizard, orders negative one beers, orders a blah, blah, blah. First real customer walks in and asks where the bathroom is. The bar bursts into flames, killing everyone. Welcome to Looney Engineering, a Canadian software engineering podcast. I'm Andrew Clarkson, a junior software developer at Universe. And I'm Chris Naismith, a senior engineer at Hopper. Hey, Chris, what do you think we should talk about today? That's a great question. I think we should maybe talk about exploding bars and testing. <laughs> I like it. I, I love I love that joke. It always makes me laugh no matter how many times I see it. It's, it's definitely great because I think it portrays like two different sides. Like one, people oftentimes when it comes to testing don't know what to test. And in this case of this joke, you know, the joke is, is that you're only testing the success criteria. It's just ordering a beer. There's obviously so much more that you could do for testing. There's so many different ways to test. Um, and I think today you and I are going to get into sort of what, what sort of testing can you do in your application? What is it good for different tools, maybe advice on like how to test, um, so uh, yeah, let's get into it. Amazing. So this is something that I definitely, and I'm sure lots of engineers, but me for sure, I, I need some more experience on this. So I, I'm going to have a lot of questions for you as someone who has done a lot of testing and you can teach me all the things. How's that sound? That sounds great. All right. So where do we start? Um, why don't we talk about the different types of testing? So what are all the different ways that we can test software? Yeah, so I think mostly you hear it broken into like three main groups. You have, you know, unit testing, integration testing, and end-to-end -end testing. And unit testing is starting with the smallest unit of measurement in the front-end world, which is where I'm from. You know, that would be like a component, a specific component. Um, and then end-to-end -end would be testing the end product that's being built and being as close to the actual user that's using the application as possible. Um, now there are other types of testing that's also out there that maybe extends a little bit beyond those. You have like visual testing, you have performance testing, security testing. Um, in some ways I've also heard of some like modern tooling as static testing, um, which is, you know, your like ESLint or TypeScript where it's, uh, before it even gets to the point of actually testing the code, it's more just testing um, you know, that it compiles and doesn't break any of the rules of the repo. Now I've heard things like TypeScript, they can reduce the amount of testing that you're doing just because they're going to catch a lot of those things before they even happen. Yeah. I mean, I, at one point in my career, wrote a bunch of tests for JavaScript that would be like, what happens if I give this function a string? What happens if I give it a number? And, you know, writing TypeScript unless if your function actually is going to accept both a string and a number, you know, you don't have to cover that because it's not a valid implementation. Now, that being said, um, probably also still good for if you're writing a TypeScript library, because there's no, there's no knowing if someone is going to use that TypeScript um, library in TypeScript, they might use it in JavaScript. Um, but for the most part, yeah, there's, there's a lot of tests that are made redundant through TypeScript. 
So before we get into those different types of tests and frameworks and that sort of thing, let's talk about kind of the, the interest of in this, this whole episode. Like, why do we test? Why should we test? Yeah, testing is uh, one of those things where sometimes it can be overwhelming and you might not be sure if it's worth it. Um, but understanding why you do it is super important. So one, testing is just, you know, making sure that the code that you wrote works. Um, and it doesn't even have to be code. You know, there's tons of things to do testing in order to validate your changes. But when you're a software developer, um, you know, probably as you're writing your code, you're testing it either through implementation or what. Sometimes it's actually using a testing framework to make sure that it's working. But that's the first one, right? You want to make sure that what you wrote is actually going to work. Um, the other reason could be maybe you have um, a critical workflow in your application. You know, it's it's the bread and butter of your application. You want to make sure that it always works and you can write tests against it so that that way, if anyone ever changes something in the future, you can have early warning signs or errors that will let you know if those... Um, if that like workflow is um, damaged in any sort of way and, and essentially would have bugs. Um, but there's there's tons of different reasons that you would want to test. Um, I'm sure, Andrew, you're aware of some. Yeah, I think that, that one that you just mentioned is probably the most important one. I mean, to test your software at the time that you write, it's like, okay, cool, bang. Yeah, it passes all the tests, which is fantastic. But it's even more important down the road when the next developer changes something and he breaks one of those, he or she breaks one of those tests. Now it's going to point towards something that they've done that has broken something that was working. Yeah, and I've, I've heard of some applications where there is so many tests that anytime that you make a single change to the code base, it ends up breaking. That can sometimes, you know, cause a different problem. But for the most part, like if you're trying to figure out where to put tests into a repo, you, you want to start first with critical workflows. Um, the other thing uh, that tests can be super helpful for is if you're wanting to refactor a code base. So I've actually gone through this myself. I was refactoring a code base. Um, it didn't have any tests. Uh, we were unfortunately frequently introducing bugs into the code base. Um, had we had um, a test suite that was already pre-set up, we would be able to refactor knowing that anytime one of those um, tests broke, that you know we could refactor with the confidence knowing that if we made a change it would be caught in development before it gets either pushed to production and all that sort of stuff so it was that that was my first introduction to testing where i actually was able to start seeing the value of it i've i had written tests i learned test frameworks but when we're first learning and we're just testing our own software that are these small little like crud apps it's good to learn, but you don't really see the value of it. It was actually this past advent of code when I was talking to everyone about it. I was like putting my code like, hey, is this good? Is this efficient? Like maybe I'm having an issue with this, that, or the next thing. And as we were refactoring things, it was then that I really realized how important tests were because I'm like, okay, hey, I know this with these inputs gives these outputs and I know it works. My code is working. But now let's refactor it. Let's make it nicer. Let's take this disaster spaghetti and make it beautiful. 
And every time I run the Tesla, yeah, it's still doing the thing. It's still doing the thing. And I could go down and I didn't have to run all my own little like manual tests every time. And that made it so quick. And that, that was where I really was like, here it is. This is why testing, or at least one reason why testing is amazing. Well, and you touched on it right there at the end is that having tests is automatic, right? And it, it makes it so that you don't have to spend that time in the future doing a manual process of verifying that something's working. I've worked at places where any single time that there's a big code change, there's a giant checklist of things that have to be verified before it can go be released in production. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those one, because as software, if you make a change in one place, it can have implications in another part of the code base that might be seemingly unrelated. And so, you know, in the case of that's, that's I work at a travel company, you know, can I check out? Can I search for hotels? Can I search for flights? Can I search for cars? Am I able to add that to, you know, am I able to check out? Am I able to spend points? Whatever it be. Mm -hmm. These are all things that are critical to the business that have to be verified in order for you to um, release to production. Because if all of a sudden someone can't check out, that's a big issue and it can leave an impact on both like your brand and image as a company and obviously impact revenue. You said something there at that company, there was a big list of things that needed to be checked. That's all a test suite is when it comes down to it, right? That's, that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, you have different levels of test suites, but, um, you know, taking that list of things that have to be validated is no different than just having, if, if a person can do it, why can't a computer like program suite just do the exact same thing? Um, so that's why we test. I don't think, I don't think why don't we test is a question, but why, why might we not test or what are some bad things about testing? Yeah, I've, so I think it goes without saying, like some people will say that testing doesn't, it doesn't add time, which I would 100% disagree, right? Because it's code that isn't being written to begin with. Some people do test-driven development, if you're familiar with that, Andrew. Mm -hmm. So that's where you know you build a test case and then you actually build the implementation after the tests have been written. Um, but it's time-consuming, right? You're going to have to write tests. Um, it might take time to set up the different frameworks for the different types of tests that you're going to be running the level of testing, um, you know, implementing it into if you have like um, CI/CD, making sure that when someone does a PR that the tests run there and prevent merging in if there's either any breaking changes or maybe a percentage of breaking changes. So all of those um, can be a negative for um, testing is that it just takes time and some places will cut that is one of the first things that they're trying to get a feature at the door. Now, you said something there as well. Testing takes time, but so does chasing bugs. So does chasing down the thing that you broke because it wasn't immediate. So does getting an on-call page at uh, midnight because your your app isn't working. So what's the, what's the trade-off here? Would you say it's one-to-one, -one, the amount of time you spend writing tests you save later? Or is it skewed one way or another? Um, I think in the short term, right, you're you're going to spend more time writing tests than what they're going to benefit you, which is 
unfortunately true unless if you have like a truly buggy app um which is more a reflection i would say at that point of the engineers than the actual like application but um in the long term it is actually going to save you time because you know any single time that you have to manually test if you have a test suite that's doing it on like automatically for you you're going to compound every single time that there's a test um and at some point there's probably going to be things that they're like, ah, we don't really care about that if uh, for the test suite anymore because it's too much work. Um, it will also make it so that way your team can probably deploy more frequently as well if there's mm -hmm. uh, you know, a test suite involved. Um, but yeah, as for the amount of time saved in the long term, you're going to be saving time because your team can focus on producing new features rather than trying to fix the buggy ones. Okay, so that gives us a pretty good overview. There's gonna be some more stuff we go into detail there, but let's get into the uh, the real nitty gritty of it. So let's talk about the different kinds of tests. So the first one you mentioned was a unit test and where we're taking not the most atomic, but like a small component of the code. Maybe it is actually a component, maybe it's just a function. And we want to make sure that it works as expected. So what does that look like in practice? Yeah. So every single language has its, for the most part, has its own testing framework. You know, like Python, I think it's uh, PyTorch. Um, Java has JUnit. C Sharp has CUnit. Um, in JavaScript, you know, we luckily get to have our own mix of tooling <laughs> that's all over the map. Um, but even Node, I don't, know if you've seen this and the latest versions of node they have a, a test runner that's mm -hmm. now baked into node i think it's version 19 and above and it might be experimental but it's eventually uh going to have a stable test runner so you don't have to install a third-party library in order to do it um but at least in my experience for like unit tests you're probably going to be looking at something like just um, as a test runner or if you're testing like React, maybe you're using like React testing library. So what are we actually testing here? So when we actually look in the code, we've all written code, whether we're writing a test for it or not, what are we actually going to test within that? And, and what's that gonna look like? Yeah, so let's take, instead of this throw components out, just because it's right. probably easier to look at like a function, okay. um, so, so let's say, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so I'll give it a, you say we have a function. So let's take the uh, the super standard one. We have a function called add. It is taking uh, X and Y and it's adding them together and is returning that. The We want to add them as numbers. Like kind of the direction you're going anyways? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly where I was going. So you might have a function that adds two numbers together. Um, and so you would write a test when given four and five, the expected result should be nine. Mm -hmm. So you call the function, you do an expect on that, um, on that value and it says, you know, expected to be nine. And so if in the future, if you refactor that addition, uh, function, or you want to make changes to it. If uh, if you ever break it, you will know right away that it's breaking. And now, it's oh god, and it's going to point right at that because the specific test that checked that is going to fail, and then you're going to be able to go, oh, that exact function is broken now. 
Exactly. And at least in the case of like Jess, because that's where the majority of my experience is, is you can have these things that are called descriptions and you can have nested describes. And think of it if you had like a Word document that's open where you have bullet points and you can nest bullet points so that they're tabbed in. So you could have a function that's called maybe, um, you know, this is testing the add function. And then you would have a test that runs and it says when given four and five, it has nine when given four and four it has eight uh, and you would have a couple different tests that are testing different things you know maybe you want to test it with a negative number right instead of two two positive integers or maybe you want to give it like a float or something like that um, and so having all these different test cases you might have one that still passes but other ones end up failing mm -hmm. and being able to know which test in particular failed is one super important so that you can look into why, uh, but two, um, just being able to say like, oh, for whatever reason, this function fails on negative numbers now. And it didn't used to do that before. And on top of that, do we fail or sorry, do we um, test things that shouldn't be happening? Like what if we pass in assuming we're not in TypeScript right now, but what if we pass a string? What if we pass it a Boolean? What if we pass it an object? Um, I think it's probably, I will say this. I, I recommend probably testing the success path first, mm -hmm. um, but sometimes you don't have control over various inputs. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you end up doing an API call and you just take that result and you throw it into a function. Right, mm -hmm. so that maybe that shape of data is, is um, non-deterministic. So you might actually write some test cases of, well, what happens if instead of coming back with this object, we just come back with a null? Um, and you could you could write those functions so that that way your function itself is doing it. I would say probably don't write tests for things that are non-actual cases that would happen. You know, like add false and true together. You're like, I don't know why you would add two Booleans together. That doesn't make sense. Um, but, you know, just making sure that you're, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> I, no, I think that was a good path on like the the non-happy path. You don't have to test as much, but yeah, like, maybe you're handling it in the function. Yeah, I think it, it's one thing. You want to test all of the paths that you can but only the ones that are valid for the actual use cases. Right. So yeah, you're not going to all of a sudden be testing for like big int and like all these other things that are just totally irrelevant that like, if you did that, you screwed up elsewhere. Like it's, it's going to be so obvious. Exactly. Okay. I, I think you want to test the actual implementations that are happening within your code base. Okay. So what's a more real world version of that? We know lots of functions are do little things like that, but what would be something that um, would be a little more real world that we'd be testing? That's not just like an add function. Maybe you have a function that's for like, it's a helper function, right? For being able to, you have a, a cart of items and you have a function that accepts a array of cart items. And then at the end, it spits you out the total cost of that cart. Perfect. And so you might give it an array of some fake data. Maybe, you know, you have a, a plush monkey that's $15 and you have a, a plush zebra that's $14. And then, you know, you do the expect on it. It comes out 
it's $29. You're like, great. Now, something that would, you know, real world, again, you have this cart, you're testing that it's going to be $29 with this thing. Um, maybe you're working on a code base and now you have to start handling taxes and taxes are super complicated, right? So in where we are, it's 13%, 15%, what is it? 13, 13, 14, 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So where we are, it's 13% sales tax when you purchase something. So you might want to be able to calculate that for, you know, maybe this handling of what's the total of the cart is now going to also have taxes. So you say, this is the country code that they're in, or this is the provincial code that they're in. And I would expect it to be whatever $29 plus 13% sales tax would be. Um, but if I test it in Alberta that has a lower sales tax, I want it to be this different number. And so things change over time, taxes do change. And so being able to, when you, in your code base, you deliberately say Alberta is no longer, I don't know the actual number, let's say it's 10% instead of 13. If they went to 11%, I actually want all those tests to fail. I want to know that there are things that broke then I can update those tests to say, oh no, this is actually what it should be. Um, and then be able to identify that. So those are things that are like a, a sort of real world example. So you touched on something there that I know is very important and that's setup of your tests. And depending on the test framework, some make it easier and harder, have a lot of like really neat tricks to set those up or easier rather than writing an individual test for every single province, you're going to be able to write smaller. There's still an individual test, but it's not like you have to set it up every single time. Exactly. Yeah. You could, you have your like test framework that just say it runs against every file that's called uh, test.js or something like that. Um, but yeah, you could have an array of every single province and then you run a unique test from that array so that in the case of Canada, you have, well, 13 provinces and territories and that it could run a single test for every single one of those every single time. And what's great about that is in the future, if you need to make a change to a specific province, um, all the other ones are not impacted because it's just looping through it. But if Canada were to ever add a new province, you could just update the province array and then boom, there you go. Instead of having 13 tests, you have 14 tests. Nice. I like it. All right. So let's move on to integration tests. So an integration test tests how different components or units of your software work together. So why don't we just rely on the unit tests? So in software, it can usually be assumed that a bunch of pieces that are built in isolation, uh, when puzzle pieced together, is just going to all work together. And that's not always true because oftentimes you might have different developers that are working um, separate from each other that go to integrate their pieces together and it doesn't have expected behavior. So let's say maybe you have, um, let's say you have like a, a backend, right? So one person might be responsible for a controller. Um, maybe there's like a service or like another service. So you have like these sort of like microservice architecture and the integration test would be making sure that your service, when it communicates to the other microservice and comes back with data, is sort of like what you're expecting. That would be like an integration test and making sure that when your pieces 
integrate, uh, you're still getting the expected behavior that you're looking for. Okay. And how does that compare then to an end-to-end -end test? Yeah. So an end-to-end -end test, like, and I will say that when you get to the edges of like, like is a very um, basic end-to-end -end test, is it not just like a, a really complicated integration test? Maybe, you know, it's not very clear. Uh, different places might refer to it as different things, but to me, a true end-to-end -end test is being as close to what the user is doing as possible. And oftentimes that means, you know, they're not integrating with APIs directly that is abstracted away from them with an interface. And so that actual interface would be, you know, you have a form and that form you end up filling out, let's say it's a registration form. So you have a first name, a last name, an email and a password. And then when you click confirm, you know, you want to see it goes to the thanks for signing up or maybe a modal pops up, whatever sort of behavior that you have, you want to validate that that's what's happening. And you might also test other parts of that. So for a registration form, maybe you have a password policy. And so you make sure if I give it a password that doesn't meet the policy, I can't register. That's a great thing to test because it is a success. Well, it's not a success path because success path would be giving it what it expects, but it's a valid use case of that registration form. Okay. So that's something that could happen. So to go back to what we were talking about before, it's actually something that happens that we want to know you're going to get rejected. You're not going to be let in if you give a wrong password. Exactly. And you might even test that still in an integration test because you might be in doing an integration with um, like say with Postman, you know, you can give it a payload and then say, Hey, if I give you this password on registration, um, I would expect this to come back with like a, a 500 error, you know, that it's, mm -hmm. um, and so that would be the integration test, whereas the end-to-end -end test is interfacing with it how the actual user is doing it rather than whatever the code behind the scenes is doing. I find like if you're testing the code, it's closer to an integration. If you're testing how the user behaves, that's an end-to-end -end test. So now when we do something like that, is the test suite you hear things like headless, like um, I know Cypress is one that I've used. It actually is doing it right in front of you, showing you what's happening. Is that something that's running more code or is that something more like it's actually clicking through? It's actually filling out the fields. Yeah. So Cypress, um, that would be filling out the fields and doing an end-to-end -end test. Whereas I did mention like Postman or even like just where you're doing, say you're using like Axios or something like that, that would be on like the, the integration side. Gotcha. Now, I know those are the three major ones. Are there other ways that we test software? Not getting into so much in security side of things, but like that the average developer might see on their day to day. Yeah. So on my side of things as a front end developer, um, we do like visual testing um, or I should say in the past I've done visual testing. And so those are tests where it is similar to it's it's gray area because visual you could almost think of like a as a unit test where it's doing a visual unit test um, but it is closer to what the end user is seeing and what's nice about a visual test is if you make changes to a component's css um, let's say you have a, a button and it has a primary background color of green and then you make a change and make it blue 
you know, the, the visual test would be able to say, Hey, this component change, like there's something that's different about this. Cause I don't think, at least to my knowledge, most of them aren't smart enough to be like, Hey, the background color changed unless if it's actually analyzing the CSS. Um, but a true like visual test will just be like, Hey, the, the look of this thing changed. Maybe it's more rounded. It's bigger. It's a different color, whatever it is. Um, but those are visual tests that you could do. Um, the other thing that I've done is performance testing. And that can be a couple different things. Um, we measure our bundle size. So that way we can see um, how much a PR is going to increase the bundle size or decrease the bundle size if we're removing code. Just so that way you can make sure that you're not shipping too much JavaScript to the end user. Because sometimes places will say, we don't want to ship more than X number of kilobytes or megabytes to the user. Okay, so let's talk about some tools. Let's talk about those frameworks, um, what we're actually going to use. What are some common ones for different, uh, different kinds of tests? You mentioned Jest. We talked about Cypress really quickly there. Um, Postman. Um, what are some other common ones that the developer is going to see on the job? Yeah, so I am a big fan of the more end-to-end -end type tests. The reason that I like that is I like to try to test what the end user is going to see. And so Cypress is great for that. I also am a big fan of Playwright, which is um, out there as well as Puppeteer. And so you brought up something that was called Headless. Um, so Headless, for those that aren't familiar, is where there's not like a, a GUI that's associated with it. So you might hear that in regards to like um, platforms that offer an API and they're like a headless experience. Um, it's also true in testing where you might have a headless Chrome running as it runs your test. Essentially, you can't see it running. And that's common when you're running in like, you know, uh, CI in like, say, GitHub Actions. You're... Your GitHub action isn't going to be opening a browser physically for you to see what's going on. It's it's headless. So those are some libraries that are out there. I'm a big fan of uh, a playwright. I'm trying to get um, it used a little bit more at work. Um, so okay, now so we've got these tests. We've written all these tests. Um, are we just going to hit run every time that we want to run the test? So I've written some code. I'm going to run the test locally. Is that it? Is that the end of the test? Uh, it can be. I mean, it's really up to the team. Um, I, of course, like, I think most modern software shops these days are running some form of CI CD. Um, so one of the steps is implementing your tests into CI CD. So that way, let's do a couple things. One, on any merges to the main branch will run a series of tests. Now that might be considered too late, but you could make it so that people can keep merging into main. And then if it is successful, then it deploys the code after that. And having that as like a, a gate of being able to deploy code. Um, you might want to run it before that. You might want to do it so that that code runs actually at the PR level mm -hmm. so that it will run a version of that code and says, yeah, it passes all the tests that we're expecting. This is safe to merge into the code base and automatically deploy from there. Yeah. And I think that touches on another point is it gives you a lot of confidence in the software that you're shipping and it gives everyone else a lot of confidence in the software that you're shipping because they don't know that you actually ran the test. They can't see what you've done there, but if it's running and you're getting all these nice green check marks in uh, GitHub before you hit merge, 
And as your reviews are being done, they can say, okay, like we're confident because we know that these tests pass already. Exactly. And, you know, the more often that you can run the tests, it's probably better so that that way you can get faster feedback on anything that might be happening. Um, but other times that you might run it is you might want to have something that runs on an interval um, because there are some cases where you can't trust, um, you know, something might be running in production and maybe every so often you just want to see like, yeah, we go to the page and there's going to be products that are there. Um, you know, you might run that on an interval just to make sure, you know, maybe you're testing the response speed of the page. You know, I loaded the home page and it was under 500 milliseconds, or uh, I loaded the page and there was at least 20 products, um, something like that. So that, that way, like warning bells can go off at work if for some reason it's not. Maybe the website is unresponsive. Maybe, you know, someone accidentally deleted the whole catalog of products, whatever it is. Um, maybe it's just like a failing API error and you're able to catch it in good time because you have these tests that are running frequently. Okay. And then you're saying that about the, 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 so you're saying that these can run automatically. They can also run locally. Now, a problem that I've heard, one that's oft brought up in testing is the tests take too long to run. What's the, what's the issue that's happening there? Why are tests taking so long? Why it's going to give people a reason to not run the tests or not rely on the tests or not use the tests. Yeah, I'd say it's probably the same thing as why does my code in general, not just tests, why does my code run slow? Uh, you probably wrote slow code. Um, a common thing that I have seen for tests that are very slow is, let's say you're testing a, like a, an admin portal. So one of the things for that admin portal is that you have to be logged in. So if for every single test in your test suite starts with you logging into the login page, that amount of time that it takes for you to log in is going to be accrued by every single test that's now in there. Um, so one thing that is very common is you'll have a pre-runner script and maybe it sets like a cookie globally for every single test. So that that way, when the test starts, it's actually already authenticated and on the page that it needs to be. And you don't end up testing the same feature on every single test that you're doing. Now, we've talked a lot about failing tests. A failing test might not always mean that there's something wrong with the code now, though, because you need to update the tests. So what does that look like in, in the day-to-day? -day? You run the test, oh, that's failed. That's specifically due with what I'm doing, but everything works properly because we're, we're changing something, we're upgrading something. We write some new tests, we change those tests. Um, you could, I'm sure, quite easily write the test just so that now they pass for your things, but that could break something else. So what are the risks that come with that? Yeah, so when it comes to like, you know, you're refactoring your code or like a test is no longer passing, the first thing to determine is like, is that expected? Like when, did you make a code change where you expected a test to break? Um, if it, you know, that's, that's what's nice about a test is if you're not expecting it to break and it does break, you're like, oh, I probably need to continue to look into this. I did something that I wasn't expecting. Uh, if you are expecting it to, to break, then you probably also have to update that test now. So in the case of, you know, we were mentioning with the taxes example, 
right? So if, uh, if in the application I update it and I say Alberta goes from 10% taxes to 11% taxes, um, I actually want that test to break. And this actually comes into a little bit of, there's flakiness, but um, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Danny, and what I like to try to avoid is where your test suite is pulling constants that the code base is also using. And why, why I want to do that is I don't, if I change application code without changing testing code, I want that test to fail. I don't want to change a code base and then the test just still passes because it's using a variable. So, you know, in the case of like, you might have a tax config, again, broken down per province. I don't want to use that same config in the test so that that way, if I update in one place, it updates in the other. It's probably, you might, at least for myself, what I want is if I change the code base again, I want the test to fail to let me know. I don't want it to, because I could change it. I change the the test to being, or I change the config and I say, Alberta has 100% tax. My test would still pass. That's and it's a totally valid code change. Whereas if I changed it, for Alberta to be 100% tax and the other one saying, oh, I'm expecting it to be 10% tax. You're like, oh, I didn't even mean to do 100. I meant to just do 11. So that's something where it gives you that additional sort of check to be like, your your tests aren't reliant on the code um, config. That's an interesting point I had not thought of because I was like, oh, that's just going to be easier. All right, let's do, uh, there's some terminology that we've used in this that I realized we've not really explained and we probably should, as well as a few other kind of quick hits here that I want to touch on. Um, the first one is, uh, you just mentioned, is a flaky test. What's a flaky test? So uh, a flaky test, uh, a lot of test suites will have a like timeout, um, a certain amount of time that is able to pass when you're expecting something. And when you're trying to test as close to the user as possible, sometimes you might have APIs that are slower. And this is pretty common you'll see in like staging and development environments compared to production. You know, in production, you want to have very fast servers. Maybe in staging, you're using cheaper servers just to save on costs. Um, I have seen where people will run a test and it passes sometimes and fails other times because of certain timeouts. You know, the amount of time it took the server to respond back for a registration request, it was under 500 milliseconds the first time, but the second time it was over 500 milliseconds. And so sometimes you can get this like odd behavior that happens when you're running the test suite. And that's one thing to just know when you're doing it, you know, you might have to add additional weights or whatever it be in order to handle this sort of like unknown amount of time. Okay. So you've talked about flaky tests and what those are. Is a flaky test the same thing as a brittle test? No. So like a brittle test would end up being where any single like code change could very quickly break the test. And so it would be a test where, Every single time that you make changes to the code base, you're wanting to also update the tests. Um, a good example of that is where um, you like snapshot testing is known to be very brittle. So in the case of a lot of snapshot testing with a component, you change the CSS for a component, and then suddenly that snapshot testing is failing because the CSS is now different. Does that necessarily mean that that test failed? No, 
I mean, you know, does the margin that's on an element suddenly make that test fail? No. But because you did that, now that test is failing. Now you have to update the snapshot. You update the snapshot and it passes again. So that's something where like snapshot testing can be brittle, um, but it's not necessarily flaky because it, it doesn't happen sometimes and not the other. So it sounds to me like those are very literal terms. A brittle test breaks easily. A flaky test just doesn't really show up all the time. Sometimes. Exactly. Just think of it as like your friend who you like invite to the party and he says, oh yeah, I'm going to be there. And then he doesn't show up. That's your, that's your flaky test. It's like, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Um, but yeah, a brittle test, it'll just like crumble very easily. Okay. Now, when it comes to testing code, I hear things like good code is easy to test. And the flip side of that is bad code is hard to test. Is that... Does that make sense? Is that uh, a truthful thing? And what is that going to look like in practice? Yeah. So um, I think it comes into different types. Like I want to say like it comes into different types of paradigms sometimes of programming. So something that's really easy to test is a function that is a pure function. You have expected input, you have expected output. And that is very easy to test. Um, a test that has side effects can be much harder to test. So in the case of maybe I have a function, um, I'm testing a, um, I'm testing my signup form and that signup form, when I click submit, has a effect where it sends a network request to the server. So maybe I have a code, I have code that's trying to like test that, um, that, is harder to test because you have to do some awkward things uh, in order to test that. Um, some term like you'll sometimes you can do like intercepting in order to intercept the network request. You can also do what's called mocking, where you can mock certain things in order to make your testing a little bit easier. Um, both of those start happening when your code is hard to test. And if you can test things directly, it's going to be far easier. It, it would be far easier for you to write the code to make it testable than some, some of these libraries give you tools to like reach into internals of the code that you wouldn't be interacting with it on like a, an actual like code level or interface level. Right. Okay. There's a couple things there that I want to, I want to pull out. The first one, uh, which is the second one you mentioned was mocking. And this goes back to making your test faster as well. Um, what is a mock in the context of testing? Yeah. So in, in the concept of uh, a test, a mock is a, think of it like a placeholder for something, anything it could, you could mock out a component, you could mock out a function, you could mock out a library. Um, all of these are things where um, it's it's probably more common to mock stuff that you have less control over, um, mm -hmm. so that that way you could uh, you like it, an example is is when you're running a test suite. Um, I have mocked out um, the set timeout function before in JavaScript, and the reason for that is sometimes you have something where, let's say, after three seconds. Um, a pop-up shows up on the screen. And instead of making a test, having it delay three seconds, 
because now that test is always going to be a minimum of three seconds, what you can do is you can mock out set timeout so that it actually runs immediately. So that way in your test framework, it happens immediately and then you can test against it instead of having to wait those three seconds. But you end up changing the like the actual uh, way that it's working in the code and it can it can get a little bit messy sometimes. Okay, so a mock is really just some fake data that's going to save you some time because instead of making a call to your server, instead of waiting, realistically, I think it, what it comes down to is instead of waiting on something else outside of your code, potentially inside of your code, it's like, boom, here's the data. So it's not, hey, server, I need these things. Database call, pulls it, comes back, sends it, you check it. It's like, this is what it is because it's you know what that server response is going to look like already. Exactly. And I've worked on applications where that let's say like a React application and you have like a container component. So you might actually mock out, um, say like Redux or mm. you might mock out like React Router. So that, cause sometimes, you know, you have a component that is telling you, oh, I need to be rendered in a React Router DOM or something like that. And so you could actually mock, um, the implementation of React Router, whatever it be, in order to overwrite that. Probably not the best way to do it, but that is an example where it's not something that you're in as much of control of, but you need to mock it so that, that way your test passes. Okay. Um, another that I'm going to touch on, it's not so specific to testing, but uh, there's the possibility not everyone listening knows exactly what this means, but a pure function. A pure function is just a function that given the same set of inputs, will always give the same set of outputs. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Same same input, same output, um, and also no side effects. So that's super easy to test because we know 1 plus 1 will always equal 2, but 1 plus something coming from the server that we're not sure what it is may not always equal the result that we expect. No. No? So that's a little bit different. So... Let's say um, I do a network request, and then I take the uh, value of that network request, put it into a function, and then it returns it. So that is still a pure function, because if you know what the input is, you will always know what the output is. Mm. Whereas if you had a function that did an API request and then returned something from it, that is impure, because mm. it's no longer, it's indeterministic what that um, function is going to happen. And if it does anything else, like it changes, uh, not just even with a pure function where expected input, expected output, it also shouldn't change anything that it is not explicitly given. So in the case of like JavaScript, where you can declare a function within a function, you could check technically change the value of a variable outside of the function, if not given it as a parameter. Okay. Um, when do we delete tests? Tests are good. We want tests. Tests make things better. When when do we say, no, that's that's not a good test anymore? Yeah, this is maybe the easiest question that you've asked me, Andrew. Hey. Hey. Uh, you stop testing. Uh, never. No. Uh, you stop testing when it's no longer like a valid case, right? Like um, sometimes I've seen where people, you have brittle tests, people will disable the brittle test because they're like, ah, it's annoying to update or it's flaky and we're going to disable it because it's annoying when it fails. Um, but like a true time to disable or like get rid of a test 
um, is when it's no longer needed for the business. So in the case of like, I don't know, you're needing to check what the, uh, that's bad. Um, you know, maybe we got rid of a certain thing that we do. We no longer need those tests. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. You know, we're deleting a feature or in the case of like, I've worked at a lot of places that do experimentation. So we had the control experiment or we had the control and then we had the experiment. And we've decided that the experiment is now going to become the new control. We're going to get rid of the old stuff. So any test that we're testing the control group um, can now just be deleted because they're no longer relevant. Um, it's only when it's a path that is no longer deemed as accepted that you can actually get rid of it. Okay. Um, when it comes to testing, do you think 100% coverage of your code is important? Oh, absolutely not. Oh my gosh. I've worked at so many places where there is this arbitrary number of tested code and the tools that are out there, I will say today are probably not very good for knowing if how much of the code is being tested because what they do is they check which lines were checked by this test. Um, and I've worked on places where they write a test and they say, if I use react.render on this component, it should render. And it's like, you're not testing the hey, actual use case of it, but it passes. And <laughs> then suddenly that entire function or that entire component is now said, oh yeah, during this test, it ran all of these lines of code. So this component is like 96% tested. Like it, it comes into like a quantity versus quality. I would rather have less tests with less coverage that are of more value than to say like, oh, we have 99% code coverage in our repo because I would be very skeptical of any code base that has 99, 100% code coverage. Because there are going to be cases um, where unless if you're severely mocking stuff out, it's going to be very hard to hit some of those edge cases that happen. Okay. And I think the final one that we have, we touched on, but we didn't talk about test-driven development. Um, buzzword, I think it's less popular than it used to be, but well, we I talked about it a little bit earlier, but you know, in, instead of having code that is already written and um, then writing the tests against it, some people do the opposite. Um, I think in front end, it's probably really hard to do that. I think it's more of a back end thing. Um, but, you know, being able, if, if it's very clear upfront what the need of the code is, yeah, if you want to write the test cases first, that by all means. Um, now, the reason that people do this is they write all their test cases first. They should know already that it shouldn't, like, you shouldn't have any passing tests, right? Because that's how you know. You, uh, well, we, we actually didn't talk about this is like false positives and false negatives, right? right? Um, but making sure that you don't have any of that to begin with, all of your assumptions are correct before code is written. And then from there, um, you actually write the implementation after your test cases, and then you get to refactor your code in order to make the, the, the test cases actually pass. So what is the benefit of that? So I, I write my test that says, when I call my add function, I expect three plus four to equal seven. What is the benefit of doing it in that direction instead of writing my code first? 
So in the case of your example there is if you write all the test cases first, then you can make sure that at the beginning, three plus four equaling seven isn't something that's already happening. And that, let's do something like, um, let's, let's do this. Zero plus zero is expected to be zero. Um, and you're like, well, that seems like a useless case. Zero plus zero will always equal zero. But in the case of a function, um, if it doesn't return anything, sometimes something might cast it into a number. Mm. And so by having that function already be pre-tested saying if zero plus zero equals zero, um, and it passes before you even have written a single line of code, you should be skeptical, right? You're like, well, why is it doing that? Oh, it's because it's not returning anything. And then it's automatically, my thing is turning it into a number. So that's something to keep in mind, um, is that it hopefully will cause you to write, um, be more thoughtful of like what you're actually writing is kind of a big thing. I think that's why test-driven development is pretty big is it, makes you think about the implementation details of that and not just like writing it for the sake of writing code. Yeah. So you actually have to, what you're hopefully doing already is thinking through what you're trying to do and what it's going to take to get there and then fulfilling that rather than doing the thing and then looking back on like, okay, let's make sure a bunch of tests run great. Exactly. Like what are the edge cases? Oh, let's write those in. What are, what's the actual like happy path that I'm wanting to do? Let's write that. All right. Now let's write the code and make sure that everything is all good to go. Right on. All right. Well, uh, that, that gets through my whole list of questions about testing. I've learned a lot. Um, test your code, ladies and gentlemen, it's important. Um, anything else you want to throw in there? I, I know you've been talking a lot here, but is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Um, I have some things just generally when it comes to testing is I, this is some personal beliefs, but I think that testing, um, should not be separate from engineering. Um, I've worked at some places where you have QA engineers and then you have product engineers and they are entirely separate. I feel like to have them separate implies that the product engineer is not responsible for quality, which is a bad way of looking at things because if the engineer doesn't have to care about not writing bugs, they're just going to continue to write more bugs. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm a big proponent of making sure that engineers that write the code also write tests. Now, that being said, I think that there should also be people that specialize in improving the quality of tests and understanding these frameworks in and out, no different than you have people that specialize in like front end and back end. So I think, you know, not to say that you can't specialize in testing, but that quality should be owned by everyone and not just by QA engineers. Seems pretty fair, like a fair opinion. Yeah, I, th I don't think it's a hot take, but I know some people who have worked at banks and they just write code and they go, ah, that's for them to test. And they're like, what, what do you mean? You don't test your code? Like I have unfortunately reviewed far too many PRs where I'm like, you didn't even run this. This doesn't even like work. It's it literally code though. Yep. Um, I worked well at, uh, at Hopper where I had an endpoint that was supposed to return hotel data and it returned car data because they copy pasted the car information. And it was like, they just said, all right, it's ready for you to like implement. And I looked at it and I was like, this is not going to work at all. And, uh, they were like, oh, my bad. And I was like, it certainly is like, you, you didn't even take the 30 seconds to make sure that it was working as expected. Um, so 
you know, it's, it's one of those things that like testing is super important. Uh, in some places you'll have pushback to either reduce the amount of tests or to not do any tests, uh, to which, you know, as we've discussed, testing has long-term benefits. It is hard to sometimes see the benefits in the short term. Um, but if you have the ability to write them to it, it has a huge amount of value. Right on. Anything else? No, I think that's everything. Brilliant. How do we want to wrap this up? Don't burn well, down your bar? Don't burn down the bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I just want to thank you for listening to another episode of Looney Engineering as Andrew and I talk about testing a little bit more on my end with my experience of testing. But I think for the most part, you know, everyone from junior to senior definitely benefits from testing. It didn't even go into this, but it's a good way of being able to uh, do knowledge transfer in a code base because you can see historical uh, information of a code base. Um, but I want to ask um, our listeners to also make sure that they follow us on the platform of choice, Spotify, Apple, Google, as well as leave us a review and uh, reach out to the both of us. Yeah. And to add to that, we often ask, um, let us know what you think. And I know that's a super open-ended question and it's hard to answer and you usually don't get an answer. But I'd like to know after this episode, how did you like this style of kind of the the junior engineer asking questions of the senior? Is this something that's valuable to you? Do you like this format? Do you like the more of the like Chris and I just talking about things? I'd be really interested to know what you think. And with that, have a good day. See you next time.